Hey there, this is an arm and a leg. I'm Dan Weissman, and I've got to share something that happened like two days after our last episode came out. And it's like, holy moly. So our last two episodes were about efforts by best-selling author and YouTube legend John Green and a boatload of international activists who have been working for like 20 years to get the drug maker Johnson & Johnson to ease up on its patent rights to an important drug for fighting tuberculosis called bedaquiline so that cheaper generics could save more lives. And you'll remember Johnson & Johnson had said yes, but only kind of. It would allow cheaper generics to get distributed, but only to certain countries. Here's John Green on YouTube picking up the story a couple days after our episode came out. Many countries, including Ukraine and South Africa and tons of others, were left out of that deal. And so it always felt like a little bit of a win, but a, a compromise win. So groups like Doctors Without Borders and Partners in Health kept pushing for more, for Johnson & Johnson to agree to not enforce its remaining patents on the drug in any low- and middle-income countries. And I've always been like, well, I mean, that's, that's probably not going to happen, but it just happened. Yeah. Johnson & Johnson said yes to everything those folks had asked for. So, wow. I mean, I'm genuinely trying to explain what a big deal this is, but I can't because it's such a big deal that it goes way beyond my capacity for language. So yeah, super cool. I thought you'd want to know. Okay, now on to this episode, which features an interview with a guy I've been chasing and you've been asking for for like three years, Dr. Galakumflecken. He's an actual doctor, an eye doctor named Will Flannery, and he makes dark and hilarious video skits about medicine. And a lot of them are just poking fun at doctors, but a lot of them are about the dark and evil workings of health insurance and private equity companies and pharmacy benefit managers. And a lot of those feature an insurance CEO and his well-intentioned aide, Jimothy. Hey, boss, you got a second? Oh, sure, Jimothy. What's up? Why are we still separating dental insurance from medical insurance? It doesn't make any sense. Jimothy, you know why. Teeth are luxury bones. Luxury bones. Yes, there are certain things only rich people are supposed to have, like teeth or glasses or mental health. You can see why I'd be interested. But I have not been able to get the guy to come on. I mean, he's pretty busy. He makes a lot of videos and he has a family and, you know, practices medicine. But he did come on another podcast recently, one I really like called The Nocturnists. It's hosted by a doctor, Emily Silverman, and it features stories from healthcare workers. Sometimes they're telling stories on stage. Sometimes they're in conversation with Emily. And Emily got Dr. Glockenflecken and his wife, who goes by Lady Glockenflecken online, to sit down for a great interview. And it has got the full Dr. Glockenflecken origin story, including the incident that started him off making those insurance industry satires because he had a heart attack and he got rushed to the ER and then had to deal with the medical bills and the insurance denials. So that's what we got for you here. We will also be back in a couple weeks with a brand new episode. And I've got one other thing to mention. We have been working for months and months and on and off for two years in a big investigative project. And we are rounding the corner on it. We will be releasing it at the end of November and it's going to be great. And in fact, I got to get back to it right now. So I'm going to leave you with Emily Silverman, the Nocturnists, and the Glockenflecken's. Support for the Nocturnists comes from the California Medical Association. At the Nocturnists, we are careful to ensure that all stories comply with healthcare privacy laws. Details may have been changed to ensure patient confidentiality. All views expressed are those of the person speaking and not their employer. 
You're listening to the Nocturnist Conversations. I'm Emily Silverman. In medicine, we tend to take ourselves pretty seriously. Between the long hours, difficult decisions, and huge responsibilities we take on as clinicians, you can see why that might be. But sometimes, a comedic voice comes along and quenches that thirst we all secretly have to poke fun at ourselves, to poke fun at each other, and even more courageously, to poke fun at the institutions and systems that we operate within. Oscar Wilde once said, comedy is the highest form of intelligence. And I've always felt that to be so true, given how sensitive and observational comedians have to be, not to mention the skill that they have with words and emotion and timing. By that measure, today's guests are definitely some of the most intelligent people in the world. I am thrilled to be hosting Dr. Will Flannery, better known as Dr. Glaucom Flecken, whose online medical comedy shorts have reached an audience of over 3.5 million viewers. I'm also here today with his wife, Kristen, whose stage name is Lady Glaucom Flecken. Together, they host a podcast called Knock Knock High, which brings together healthcare and satire for both medical and lay audiences. In my conversation with Will and Kristen, we discuss how they got started in comedy, the unexpected twists and turns of their career paths, both as individuals and as a couple, and the harrowing experience of Will's cardiac arrest just a few years ago, which caused them to see the dysfunction of the healthcare system firsthand, and then inspired them to inject more policy critiques into their comedy. But before we dive in, check out this audio clip from one of Dr. Glaucom Flecken's sketch comedy videos. United Prior Authorizations, how can I help you today? Hi, yeah, I'm trying to get a brain MRI approved for a patient. Oh, I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to do that. What? I haven't even told you about the patient yet. Well, we always say that at the beginning of every prior authorization, hoping that you'll give up immediately. So, you give up? No. Okay, what did you say you want? Some kind of picture? An MRI of the brain. I have a patient who might have a tumor. Oh, hold on. Have you thought about an x-ray first? Excuse me? Yeah, according to the United Healthcare How to Practice Medicine pamphlet, an x-ray is cheaper and therefore better. An x-ray is for bones. Huh? It's not what you think. There are no bones in the brain. We need an MRI. Have you explored other diagnostic modalities like palpation? You can't palpate a brain tumor. It's surrounded by a skull. Huh. I thought you said there were no bones in the brain. We're not going to get very far if you're not honest with me. Listen, the patient has headaches and hemiparesis. Well, why didn't you say so? Okay, thank you. Now we're getting some. We'll need six weeks of PT before we can approve an MRI. What? You never know. Maybe some leg lifts will improve the paralysis. Okay, I'm going to need your name and your supervisor's phone number. Okay, okay. I'll approve your patient's MRI. Great. So I can call the hospital and get it scheduled? Oh, no, no, no. You can't do it at the hospital. Why not? Hospital charges us way too much. Now, there's a facility about 150 miles south of you. Patient needs to go there. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. There's a guy down there. Bought himself an MRI. It's in the back of a Texaco. Just knock on the door. Ask for Mike. But the hospital's a block away. 
Listen, do you want your patient to get an MRI or not? Yeah. Then you send them to see Texaco Mike. And they'll be able to get an MRI? Yeah. Kinda. Wait, what does that mean? Well, the patient's plan only approves a walk-by. What is that? The patient just walks briskly past the MRI machine, and Texaco Mike just gets whatever images he can. Also, your patient hasn't met their deductible, so this will be out of pocket. Sitting here with Will and Kristen Flannery, also known as Dr. Glaucomflecken and Lady Glaucomflecken. Thank you so much, both of you, for being here. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having Good. us. Nice job on Glaucomflecken. <laughs> well, actually, right. my first question was going to be, tell me about that word, Glaucom. <laughs> I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. What is that? Be careful what you wish for here. Yeah. Because it, <laughs> it's an actual ophthalmology term. And it has to do with angle closure glaucoma. I'm not going to go into the details, but it's a it's an actual thing in ophthalmology. And, and when I chose that word, I was just trying to come up with the most ridiculous word in ophthalmology. And fortunately, there are so many options in my field, but I just happened to go with glaucomflecken. And I, I feel bad for the person that actually discovered glaucomflecken, because now when you <laughs> Google glaucomflecken, it's all me and my TikTok Silly videos, videos yeah. instead of the actual scientific thing. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say I looked it up earlier, but all I could find was you. <laughs> yeah. <right>. Exactly. <laughs> Apologies to the German researcher, whoever he was. So I want to get into your comedy and your podcasts in a bit. But first, maybe tell me a little bit about yourselves. Will, I know that you are a practicing ophthalmologist. Kristen, I don't know as much about your background. Like, tell me maybe a little bit about your professional arcs and then sprinkle in the love story of when and where you met and how everything converged. <laughs> Those are pretty intertwined, honestly. So that's easy. <laughs> you can start. We met in college at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas. It's very nerdy. We were both part of the honors college and there was an honors dorm where all the honors kids would hang out. And so through mutual friends and shared spaces, bumped into each other and got to know each other. We dated for a couple of years in college, then it was time to graduate, and we were thinking about what's next. Long story short, I was going to graduate school. I was looking at cognitive neuroscience programs and social psychology, the combination of those two. And um, I found a, a lab at Dartmouth that I wanted to go to, and I applied, and I got accepted, and all of that. There Meanwhile, weren't a lot of options out there, though. There's a decent sized field, but it's small. But Will wanted to go to medical school and our application calendars did not really align very well. So that was a nerve wracking year of trying to do our own makeshift couples match prior to medical school. <laughs> so right. uh, it all worked out. In the end, it was a very harrowing, like he had the last interview spot, he got put on the wait list. And then two weeks before he was about to move to Houston, to start medical school there, we got the call that he had been 
accepted off of the wait list. And so we changed plans and we both went up to New Hampshire together instead. I wrote Dartmouth a lot of letters. Yeah, we we weren't above begging, really. (laughs) That's really what I did. Everything short of holding a boombox outside their office. Yeah. Screaming that my wife was coming or my my girlfriend Girlfriend at the time. time, Yeah, that's the thing. I couldn't be like, "Hey, my girlfriend's (laughs) going to Dartmouth. Can I come too?" Like, it doesn't it doesn't quite work that way. So anyway, it eventually worked out though. Yeah. So my arc is a little twistier. I was in a PhD program, and then year and a half, two years in, I started to wonder, like, I'm not sure if this is for me. Like, I don't know if this is the career that I want, you know, is kind of seeing everyone in the department and what their lives looked like and things. And I was just like, I don't know. I was just kind of increasingly unhappy. And I'm sure my work was suffering because of it. And so I just decided I'm going to cut my losses. And I pivoted from what I had been doing. I had finished everything except to do the dissertation. So I had done all the comprehensive exams and all of those things. And I wrote a master's thesis instead of going on to do a dissertation. And I mastered out and pivoted. And from there, I went into a career in gifted education. And then within that career, I eventually kind of morphed into doing the communications and and marketing and recently was able to leave that career to do Glockenflecken full time. So I'm on my second or third career now. (laughs) But in retrospect, looking back, you can see a line drawn through it to see some common themes. But certainly at the time, it felt like just twisting and turning and not anything that you might plan out when you're a kindergartner talking about what you want to be when you grow up. <laughs> and like most medical spouses, she was somewhat at the mercy of yeah. my educational arc and where Match right. sent us and all this stuff. So, yeah, when we got to Dartmouth, I didn't know what I wanted to do for a career. I just knew I wanted to be a doctor and I actually didn't decide on ophthalmology till like... The, the last minute. I've never yeah, seen it was, a, a it theme the, with you. The beginning of my fourth year, I had a tough time deciding. And I actually, when I showed up to Dartmouth, we all had academic advisors. They're just like kind of randomly assigned to us. And day two of med school, I go to have this meeting with my academic advisor. Her name was Susan Pepin. And she was an ophthalmologist. And I remember having this conversation with her and asking her, so that's eyes, right? Like I had no, I, I didn't even know what that was. I've never worn glasses. I've never had like even a dedicated eye exam. Don't tell anybody. I know I'm recording this for all to hear, but it's true. And so I had no idea what an ophthalmologist did. And so we were talking about that and I was like, so it's eyeball. So it's eye surgery you're doing. And then at the end of that conversation, I, she knew that I didn't know what I wanted to do. And she's like, okay, well, after talking with you, like you're going to go away, you're going to do all these things. You're going to think about all these different specialties, but you're going to be back. You'll be back. You'll go into ophthalmology. You'll see the light. You'll you'll realize that that's the career for you. And she was right. Yeah. I don't know amazing. if she says that to everybody. I don't know. I want to say she just realized that I'm one of those strange people that want to devote their careers to the eyeball. And yeah. And that you didn't want to have to, you know, work five days a week. And... <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Yeah, they used to talk, I don't know if they still do, but they used to talk about the road 
to happiness, ROAD, which is, I think, radiology, Mm -hmm. ophthalmology, anesthesiology, dermatology. It's kind of sad, right? It's kind of sad that out of all the specialties, there's four that are known for having (laughs) decent work-life balance. Decent work-life balance. (laughs) Anyway. Are you mostly in clinic? Are you in the OR at all? And what is your day-to-day like as a physician? Yeah, yeah. So I did my residency training at Iowa and then... I knew pretty early in residency that I wanted to go into private practice, that the academic life wasn't for me. The idea of doing research made me kind of want to throw up a little bit. So it's <laughs> it wasn't my bag. And so I went the private practice route, found a great practice in the Portland, Oregon area. I've been here since 2017. It's a four-day-a-week practice. So four days a week, I'm doing ophthalmology Two to three days of that is clinic, and then a day a week is surgery or a half day a week. It keeps me plenty busy, you know. It's a pretty high-volume practice. There's lots of people that need eye care, that need cataracts, especially as the population gets older. And so I've got more ophthalmology work than I know what to do with, which makes it all the more difficult to do this other glockenflecken thing <laughs> that I have tried to fit into the nooks and crannies of my professional life as an ophthalmologist. Yeah. Four days a week. Wow. I am impressed that you've been so artistically prolific while still keeping up that level of practice, even as an eye doctor. Um. <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing. Whatever your schedule is, if you have a creative pursuit, a hobby, whatever it is, and you enjoy it and you continue to explore it to see where it goes, it will eventually fill up all of your free time. Honestly, whatever I ended up doing in medicine, I feel like this was always going to be the end result, which was practicing medicine and then all the rest of my free time, however much that might be, I was going to be dressing up as different specialties in medicine and recording myself. So <laughs> I'm a lucky lady. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about comedy and comedy in your lives as individuals, as a couple. Did you grow up loving comedy? Like, were you class clowns? Did you do improv or stand up? Like, how did this become a part of what you do? I've always been a class clown. I loved making my friends laugh, kind of known for that. When I was in sixth grade, I was in the gifted education track, you know, in like junior high and everything. And and that's what my mom taught at the school that I went to. And so I ended up in her class as a sixth grader, which in retrospect was a terrible idea because (laughs) she was a lot harder than me. And me being the class clown was not open to that kind of uh, behavior. And so um, that was the first time my comedy kind of, you know, I butted heads with someone and it just happened to be my mom. <laughs> she she wrote him up. She gave him like a disciplinary report yeah. and made him take it home to have his dad sign it. <laughs> exactly. So so early on Wait, what was what was the joke that you got in trouble oh my, for? Do you remember? I, I don't know. I was it, <laughs> it was I, probably just being a jerk. I was you know? <laughs> I was more I think I was more into physical comedy yeah. back then. Yeah, I didn't have the he was a sixth grade boy with his yeah, mom as a you know, teacher, I, I, so I, you can who, imagine. Who knows what I was doing? <laughs> Whatever it took to get a laugh out of my friends. But um, early on, that was a big part of my life, you know, making people laugh. And so when I got into high school, a friend of mine, who's the best man at my wedding, is someone I really look up to. He was doing stand-up comedy. Very funny guy. And he was a senior. I was a junior in high school. And he was like, hey, you should come with me. Check it out. 
And I was like, oh, that sounds fun. I'd never been in a comedy club before. He was 18. I was 17. So I couldn't be in the comedy club past like nine o'clock at night. I guess that was the rule or whatever. So I would go to these open mics with him. This is in Houston, Texas at the uh, Laugh, Laugh, Stop. Laugh Stop, which is no longer around, unfortunately. But famous comedy club on the comedy circuit. I was going to these open mics and doing like five minute sets. We put our name on the list and do a five minute set to the five or six people who were at a comedy club at like six o'clock in the <laughs> early evening on a Wednesday, you know, it's, <laughs> but it was, for me, it was Good crowd. exactly yeah. great crowd. <laughs> and it's all other comics too, which is like the worst crowd because everyone's judging mm-hmm. you and, uh, And so it was really more just being in that atmosphere and being around other funny people and riffing off of each other and running jokes by each other and writing together. And all of that was just intoxicating. It was just so much fun. And eventually I had to decide, do I want to do this as a career? Because I had a little talent. Like I could tell that, although I didn't always make people laugh on stage, there was something there. And I I, I recognized that. But in the end, I looked around at everybody, all these people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, like still trying to make it in comedy. And I I realized that this is going to be a really long, hard road. So I decided to go the much easier route of becoming a doctor and decided comedy was just, it was going to be my hobby. It's going to be the thing that I just kept doing creatively because that was very important. And so I graduated high school, went on to college, kept doing stand-up in different venues, going to, I don't know, talent shows. There wasn't much in Lubbock, Texas. It's like West Texas. So it wasn't a lot of opportunities. Yeah, it was just like whatever was on campus. I found them. I wrote for like a satire newsletter briefly there. So I found ways to really exercise that comedic muscle. And did you get to see him do a lot of stand-up, Kristen? Yeah, I would go if he had open mics and things like that. And, of course, if he wrote something, I would read that. But his comedy was a lot different back then, you know? It was not medical-themed at all. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. what was the material? I'm just curious. I remember a lot of Irish jokes. Yeah, it was kind of my, my background, you know, my family. Yeah. I don't know, college I, would I think probably, your mom featured in some yeah, some jokes. I would if I went back. <laughs> it's a recurring theme. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember a lot of my material, honestly. If I went back and heard the things I was saying, it would probably be maximum cringe. I would imagine. Probably. I mean, uh, it was just a because, long time ago. <laughs> just because it's not. Yeah, it's you're a different person. I was. Right. I was like You've like had a lot 15, of practice. Twenty then. years ago now. So yeah, it wasn't until I got to med school when I was studying what the Krebs cycle all day and writing jokes about that that I started to explore the medical comedy a little bit more. That was a little bit rough going trying to translate that to a general audience at like a comedy club, but. It was also a lot of fun because it was this new area I was exploring. I was learning so much in med school and then trying to translate that into something Yeah, funny. it was also kind of the first foray into some of the darker comedy because he also got his first cancer diagnosis. He had testicular cancer during medical school. And he, I remember a set that you wrote just about that. So he went to this comedy club or I don't know, even know if it was a comedy club, but some open mic somewhere. And was doing a set about having cancer, you know, and I remember people kind of like not being sure, is it okay to laugh? (laughs) Like that joke was funny, but it's about cancer. Can we laugh at that? You know, so that's the first one I really remember. It was medical and it was a little bit, you know, pushing the envelope. And looking back, that's kind of, I think, the beginning of the style of humor that you use now. Yeah. 
This is An Arm and a Leg, presenting the Nocturnist's interview with Dr. and Lady Glockenflecken. Our show is produced in partnership with KFF Health News. That's a nonprofit newsroom covering healthcare in America. Their journalism is absolutely tops. You can check it out at kffhealthnews.org. All right, back to the Nocturnists and the Glockenfleckens. I'm trying to remember when I first came across you and your work. I feel like it's been several years, I want to say, that I've been following you on social media. That's where I first came Mm -hmm. across your comedy. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it started more as tweets. Like I remember there were these really witty, biting tweets. And I always wondered because you had the pseudonym. It was Dr. Glaukenflecken. It didn't say your real name or like where you were located or anything. And I was like, who is this hilarious, anonymous eye doctor that is tweeting this like hilarious shit on <laughs> social media. And then later the videos came yeah. and I remember it's like, oh, that's him. Like, and now I get to see his face. And so that's how it was experienced by me as an audience member, as a fan is like sort of that evolution over time. But I'm curious what it was like on the inside. Like, did it start online? Well, it did. So the second time I was diagnosed with cancer, I was in residency and it was around that time I decided to start the Glockenflecken Twitter account because I needed an outlet. I was like, yeah, what am I going to do? I, I need to get back into comedy. And Iowa is not exactly a fantastic place for comedy. Not a lot of opportunities. And so I started Glockenflecken. And it was at first on Twitter. But also I was writing for Gomer blog. It was like the onion for medical professionals. And it was a lot of fun. It was just a way to write comedy, write humor. And actually that experience writing for them, which I did starting, I think, toward the tail end of my final year in med school and also first year of residency. It was great for me because it forced me to start thinking about other specialties outside of ophthalmology. Because I was writing all these articles about cardiology and nephrology and surgery and everything. And so I was able to translate that pretty well into Twitter because I wasn't just writing ophthalmology jokes. I started doing that and had a robust audience of about 10 people. (laughs) But by having already done all this comedy writing for the satire website, it was easy for me to start thinking about jokes from different specialties. And that really helped me to grow the audience a lot faster because I was reaching a wider net. You, know? you used Twitter in conjunction. So Twitter was sort of your yeah. your research grounds. You know, you would try out ideas in a tweet and see if people responded. And, you know, if not, then, OK, abandon that idea. That's not very funny. But if they do, then kind of explore that more. And then eventually yeah. that idea might turn into an article and using this real-time audience feedback to write and revise the comedy. Yeah, it really did help. It's like going back to when I was doing stand-up in Houston, like having a little group of people we could run things by each other, and it helped to shape my comedy early on. And then it wasn't until the pandemic hit, Mm -hmm. when the lockdown happened, that I started making videos. Actually, because somebody on Twitter was like, hey, you should check out TikTok. I was like, okay, what's this? Because 2020 is when TikTok just skyrocketed. Were you nervous to transition from anonymous tweeting to having your face out there? Like, was that a difficult leap? It it wasn't because... I was nervous. (laughs) It was was easier. I think it was easier for me just because I was in private practice. At that point, I had been my own boss 
pretty much for a couple of years. And so I felt more comfortable shedding my anonymity and putting my face out there. We didn't have, I think I just did it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I didn't have much say in it, but I, <laughs> but we also, I maybe postponed you a little bit, but you know, for, for me, it was more like from the family perspective, like he'd had a decent sized following on Twitter by that point. And, you know, people were sending him messages and it just started to feel a little bit like, okay, there's this sea full of internet strangers that are going to know who you are. And in this day and age, that means they can Google you and they can find out where you are. And it just felt weird to me. You know, we have small children and neither one of us have ever been in the public eye before. And and so it just felt like, I don't know, I'm not so sure. I could see how it would really allow him to take his hobby to the next level. And he was really enjoying it. And I, of course, wanted to support that. But I was also a little bit nervous from kind of the mom perspective. We're still very careful with protecting our children's identities and faces until they're old enough to decide whether they want to put themselves on the internet. So for me, it's still kind of a a mixed bag. (laughs) Yeah, it is a mixed bag. And you're totally famous in medical circles. Like I told you this anecdote offline, but I was in Miami visiting my dad and I took my daughter to a playground nearby, a random playground, and I was pushing her in the swing and the woman pushing her baby in the swing next to me, she and I got talking and her partner was an opto resident. Mm. And I asked if she knew you and she was like, oh yeah. And you know, it's just (laughs) random person in the street. And so, um, Yeah. yeah, you do have quite the following and quite the visibility and certainly a degree of fame. It wasn't like that though, initially. When I started making the videos, I actually remember this. On Twitter, I had about maybe 20,000 followers. It was a pretty good following, but it wasn't that enormous of a platform. Certainly not what it is now. No. And so... You have 2 million followers on TikTok, is that right? TikTok, yeah. Yeah, a little over 2 million. I think it's like, I was just looking this up. I think it was like 3.5 million across channels right now. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It was the pandemic because everyone was on social media, right? That's how people were getting their information. And for a while, no one was working because everything was shut down. And so the engagement that everything was through the roof, which included the videos that I was making, I feel like I came along at the right time for a number of reasons. One, just the circumstances, the pandemic and the exposure that content on social media was getting at that time, but also people in healthcare, I think, needed something to laugh at. They needed whatever. It doesn't matter what it was. They just needed something (laughs) to help relieve some of the stress from the horrible things that were happening in the world. Let's talk a little bit about the types of videos that you make, like different topics and themes, because there are some Mm -hmm. buckets, I would say. You can almost sort the videos into different buckets. Obviously, there's the initial jokes you were doing, which were more eye focused and talking about the way that you hate, what is it, Visine or something (laughs) like that? Yes, it's awful. We don't say that word here. Yeah, make sure you bleep that out. (laughs) Yeah. The Visine. It's like Voldemort. Voldemort. It's the other V word. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So there's like the eye jokes. And then, as you said, that brought in to include all the different medical specialties. And if we have time, I'd love to talk a little bit about that because you just capture the essence of the different specialties so beautifully, like the nerdiness of the neurologist, the 
adrenaline junkiness of the emergency medicine doctor and the family medicine doctor whose glasses are always crooked because they're so <laughs> overwhelmed and just drowning in work. Yeah. And so it's almost like the different colors or different flavors of the profession and satirizing that. And then there's a step further where you start to get into critiques of how hospitals and systems treat their clinicians. And there's a hilarious video that you have called Happy Doctor's Day, uh, where somebody <laughs> hears an overhead announcement that it's time to go get their gift for Doctor's Day and they show up to get the gift and it's just somebody who looks at them and says, thank you, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a step further where you branch out and do more critiques of the healthcare system in general and how it impacts patients. So you have comedic content about prior authorization, about pharmacy benefit managers, about these really almost in the weeds mm. health policy topics. They're hilarious, and so, right? Everybody <laughs> thinks those are funny. Those topics, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, they are hilarious when you talk about them. Those are some of the buckets in my mind when I think about what you do yeah. in your content. I'm wondering if you can speak to that and maybe the evolution of that and what you choose to, yeah. to make fun yeah. of. All the character stuff, all the specialty specific stuff came first. And I would take a, a lot of times there were tweets that I would see. I'd follow people in different specialties and I'd just pay attention to what they were talking about on social media. And so I'd see somebody airing some grievance about admitting a patient to the ICU, trying to admit a patient from the emergency department. And I'd be like, oh, I, I think I can make a skit about that. And so I would get my ideas that way. The characters just kind of evolved naturally i didn't set out to like create this whole hospital full of <laughs> characters but i'd have one skit where the emergency physician was leaving work and he was putting on his bike helmet i was like well why doesn't he just always wear a bike helmet that could be funny and so they just kind of like evolved and and plus it's only me playing all these like i had to make them unique in some way right it's just otherwise it's just my face and people will get confused about who is who and i didn't want to keep introducing every character every video so i wanted to have some kind of physical characteristic that allowed people to just know okay the family medicine physician is talking because he can't put his glasses on straight because he's too overworked and so that's kind of how the characters themselves evolved the critique of the healthcare system and administration, insurance companies, academic publishing, private equity, all these big things that are impacting medicine in different ways really started when I had my cardiac arrest and we started dealing with the healthcare system from a different perspective, having to struggle with the billing and surprise and, billing, yeah, and just health insurance companies. And so that was the origin of that. And I started to realize as I was tweeting about health insurance at first, whenever I recovered from the cardiac arrest and started making a couple of videos, the response I was getting from people, not just in healthcare, but the general public, the thousands and thousands of comments that were coming in on a video about prior authorization, it told me that this is like, this is a thing that I'm tapping into a raw nerve here for everybody. I remember when you had your cardiac arrest. Me too. Because, <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you remember, Kristen, and I want to hear from you about this in a moment because I know this is an incredibly important story for your family. But on my end, I remember not seeing you 
on Twitter for a while and kind of wondering like, where is he? And then you came back and you said, Hey everybody, I'm back. I had a cardiac arrest. And I think that was around the time, Kristen, when you opened a Twitter handle maybe, or that's when I started hearing a bit from you on social media as well. Mm -hmm. And kind of you were brought on stage in a way that you hadn't previously. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can tell us a bit, I mean, A, just about the cardiac arrest because the story is tremendous. And then B, maybe reflecting a little bit about how that translated into some of this more creative work Mm -hmm. on your side. Yeah, so- Backing up a bit, I had started my Twitter account. He was Dr. Glockenflecken, so I made one called Lady Glockenflecken. And its purpose was really just kind of to see what he was up to all the time. Because (laughs) I would see him on his phone just kind of giggling in a chair in the corner. And, you know, just it seemed like he was in this little world, right, that I wasn't really privy to. And, and it seemed like fun over there. So (laughs) yeah, he would tell me little snippets of stories or conversations that he'd had or whatever. And so I kind of knew some of the names of people and had a toe dipped into it, but I really jumped in the pool and it was mostly to keep up, but also to kind of roast him publicly Hmm. a little. (laughs) That was keep him humble. Yeah, Most of my early tweets were, were that. So I had been on Twitter and and been somewhat active for a while before the cardiac arrest, maybe a year or something. When he had the cardiac arrest, then I was kind of a source of information (laughs) for everyone. Well, let's also not forget about the fact that you saved his life. Yeah. Yeah, so May of 2020, so it's early in the pandemic lockdowns, and we still don't know a lot about COVID at that point. It's still very, very scary and uncertain, and we don't know if masks work. There is no vaccine. We don't really know a lot about the disease itself. So it was sort of at the height of that big scare. And It was Mother's Day weekend, so we had a really nice little family Mother's Day to ourselves. We couldn't go anywhere, but we'd had a nice day and then went to bed, and I woke up at about 4.45 in the morning because he was making these really loud sounds, and I had been jolted awake from a deep sleep, and so at first I thought he was snoring, and you know, I am not medically trained in any way. I'm not a doctor. I'm not anything. I'm just a regular lay person. And so I thought those sounds were snoring. And so I kind of shoved him a little bit to try to get him to turn over and stop snoring, go back to sleep. But he didn't do anything. And, you know, something about that just stood out to me as odd. So I kind of tried a little harder and he still didn't do anything. And so then I got scared because I was like, this is not normal. The sounds are sounding more urgent and they're not rhythmic anymore and they just had this sort of like desperate quality and scary quality to them in retrospect i learned that those were of course agonal respirations but i had never heard of that i had no idea what that was i have never seen the death process in person nothing but i did know that something was drastically wrong and so i called 911 And the dispatcher told me to start CPR and she walked me through it and counted to help me keep the right pace. Um, I was really worried about my ability to do it because I couldn't move him off of our bed. He's got about 13 or 14 inches on me. 
I won't say how many pounds, but a lot. <laughs> um, and I'm somewhere on the hypermobile spectrum disorder. So I had just had a cervical disc replacement a few months before I was still recovering from. And so I really doubted my ability <laughs> to do any of this effectively. And I think because of that, I mean, I would have given it my all no matter what, but I was kind of trying to overcompensate because I was so concerned that I wouldn't be able to do it well enough. So our kids were were asleep in the next room and I was just thinking about like, I there's no way I can let them wake up without a dad just suddenly and with no explanation and no chance to say goodbye. And just, you know, you wake up one morning and your childhood is shattered. That just kept going through my mind. And I just, to whatever extent possible that I have control over that, I cannot let that happen. So long story short, I ended up doing 10 minutes of CPR before paramedics arrived. And then they shocked him five times and I don't know, gave him, I think it was three rounds of epinephrine and some amiodarone and probably some other things. I followed them. They took him from the bed downstairs to use the defibrillator. And I, I followed them and I saw him, you know, when I was doing CPR, I saw him turning blue and then purple. And then as they carried him down the stairs, then he was this like gray white color that I'm sure, you know, you are familiar with, your audience is probably familiar with. And, you know, there's just something about a person's body when they're unresponsive. It's creepy, right? There's just something that deep down, even if you're not medically trained, you know, that's not right. That's scary. And something very bad is happening. So his body looked like that. And then they laid him on the floor and I heard the sounds of the equipment they were using. And it was kind of like a TV show, right, of all the beeps and boops and stuff. And there was a flat line in there. And so I knew that wasn't good. And they pulled out the paddles. And I had seen enough ER. Not, I haven't watched a lot, but I had seen enough to know what that meant. And I didn't think that I could watch that and remain calm and I didn't want to be a distraction from them giving him the help he needed. And so I turned around and I went up the stairs. And as I was going up the stairs, I heard them deliver the first shock. And then I heard his body just slam on the floor in this horrible way. And that's kind of the last I remember of seeing him. Like I was upstairs making sure the kids weren't coming out of their room and I was packing a hospital bag in case he was going to need one. <laughs> I, don't, I was just trying to think of anything I could do to be helpful in some way and calling our parents and calling his work to say he's not coming in today. You better reschedule his patients. And then they took him to the emergency room in an ambulance and I was allowed to follow, but I was only allowed in as an end of life case. But I found out it was an end of life case by seeing that written on the door because there were three reasons why someone could come in and the other two didn't apply to me at all. That was the only one. This is COVID restrictions. COVID restrictions, yes. May of 2020. So everyone was in hazmat suits and, and all of these things. And I had a mask on, but we didn't know. Again, we didn't know if masks did anything, but they let me in. I remember I have this flashbulb memory. They handed me an advanced directive piece of paper. I was like, well, seems a little late for that, don't you think? <laughs> it's 
So uh, I don't know why they did that. And then they put me in a waiting area, like not the waiting room. I'm not sure why they didn't put me in there. But they put me in a room in the radiology department where patients would get gowned up and then sit in this room to wait for someone to come in to get them for their scans. So they put me in that room. And again, I'm all alone. I'm the only one allowed to come in. I'm not even able to be with him. I don't know where he is within the hospital at this point. And they put me in that room. But since it's in radiology, the walls were lined with lead and that cut off my cell phone signal. And so now I was isolated from oh God, what a all the rest of the world. Right. And I was the liaison, right, between him and our families. Like the, everyone was obviously horrified and wanted updates as frequently as possible. And that was on me to deliver. And so I was trying to do those things, not to mention like just trying to cope and process what was happening and, you know, maybe needing a little social support to be able to do that. So I would go down the hallway a bit where I could still see the door of the room to know if someone was coming in to give me an update. But if I walked out of that section a bit down the hallway, then I could get a little bit of signal. So I would go back and forth from the room down the hallway to make calls, use my phone, whatever, and then come back and wait more. And I got a couple of updates from the emergency room cardiologist. But before very long, I think I was only there about an hour the lady who had let me into the hospital, who had given me that advanced directive paperwork, she came and kicked me out of the hospital because she said, we didn't know if he had COVID. They had done a test, but it would take 24 hours to get results. And they didn't know if I had COVID. And so because I was not staying in that room, they put me in. She said I was making people nervous. And so I had to leave. People meaning healthcare staff, because that's all that was there. So I sat outside on a bench and I called my parents and like a little kid getting kicked out of school or something, waiting for their mommy to pick them up. But from there, yeah, I went home and got updates over the phone periodically. And I only got to see him over FaceTime. And that was after he woke up. So the whole time that he was unconscious, it was excruciating because I couldn't be there. I couldn't see... You know, what's his color look like? Is he trying to move? Are there any signs of him in there at all? So it was really hard. And, and I think there are so many people that have a similar story during the pandemic of not being able to be there with a loved one. And we all know, but I think the rest of the world is only starting to realize just how traumatic that is and was. And I think that we're going to be living with the after effects of that for a long time. It's just such a story. It's so incredible. Yeah. I mean, thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Yeah, it all turned um, out okay in the end. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that that moment of you have to leave, you're making people nervous. Mm -hmm. It sounds like that was sort of 
the first obstacle of what would become many in dealing with dysfunction in the healthcare system. It sounds like mm-hmm. later there were obstacles that came up having to do with bureaucracy and insurance, mm-hmm. which is what motivated you, Will, to start incorporating some of that into yeah, yeah. your comedy. And then also, Kristen, did that motivate you to get more involved as a character in the universe of, I don't know what you would call it, the Glaucom fucking creative universe. Cinematic, I think is what you say. Cinematic, Cinematic universe. universe. <laughs> uh, it certainly motivated me to become more active on my own social media channels to advocate for co-survivors is the term. I found a paper by Kirstie Haywood and Katie Dainty that talked about that. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, yes, that is exactly it. That is what this is. That is what it feels like. That is what I am. And that allowed me to start talking about it and advocating. In medical trauma and critical illness, the people that are very closely attached to the patient are affected in many ways just as much and sometimes more than the patient themselves, you know, in different ways. And attention very rightly goes to the patient to make sure that they are healing and recovering. And that is all wonderful. But we are missing this other piece. There are more than one patient in those scenarios. Yeah. It really kicked off the advocacy side of what we do. Yeah. Just all the way around with incredible work Kristen's doing. And then the health insurance health insurance was a big part of that, you know, because I was sedated for, I think, 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And then they brought me out of sedation and all my testing was okay. And I was talking and tweeting again. <laughs> That's when the... You were tweeting yes. again like, in the hospital after this. I was, had not been discharged yet. <laughs> that was yeah. actually the moment that Kristen like knew that I was going to be myself. Yeah. I was still I in knew there. he was alive and he had yeah. survived, but we didn't know yet. What's his cognitive function? It, yeah. And I saw a tweet, that one that you referenced, the boy have I had a wild few days. Yeah. And right. I was like in the I, ICU was, when I was. When yep. I was and so then that. I was like, oh, thank goodness. Like he's still him, <laughs> you know, so I found out along with everybody else. You know, then I was discharged pretty quickly after. And initially there's just elation. There's just, you know, I'm home. I'm hugging my wife and kids again. And we're all together as a family. And then the way the U.S. healthcare system works is about a month later. That's when the medical bills start coming in. Right. And. It's like a lot of bills. They don't all come at once. There's like one here from there and there's one from the nephrologist you saw one time. And there's another one from the person who put a catheter in to do the hypothermia treatment. And meanwhile, you were unconscious for all of these. So you have no memory of any of these people or events or things to kind of attach to this bill. So it's all very complicated, even for me, like as a physician, like I'm in this system and it's still overwhelming all the things that were coming in. And then I started having, you know, the surprise billing issue where some of the doctors that took care of me in the hospital were out of my insurance network. And so they weren't being covered. And that was like tens of thousands of dollars of bills. All told, it was like nine months of angry phone calls. And we've all been there in in healthcare, like all the frustration that you have about health insurance companies. Like I was dealing with all that on a daily basis. While he's trying to recover from the fact that he had a cardiac arrest, like not just physically, but mentally, we as a family are trying to come to terms with all this. And that's what we have to do. And it kept recurring to me like, man, this is what people are going through all the time. I'm fortunate that I'm a physician. So I have a rough understanding of what's going on here. And I am able to 
pay the bills that come. But there's so many people that can't. And the financial devastation is a lot of times even worse than just recovering from a hospitalization. And so that really is what produced that change in my content, because I started to pick out the things like insurance denials or coinsurance, deductibles, prior authorizations. I started picking out these little topics that I thought were kind of confusing and wanted to make them accessible to a general audience. That was my goal. Because I thought it may be helpful for medical professionals as well. But really, I wanted to try to shine light on this for everybody to understand. Oh, that's what's going on? Like that? That's the thing? And obviously, like everything I do, I have to like add humor to it or else I just can't stand it. And so I was turning these complex topics into a skit. And if you make something funny, people are more likely to watch it. And so the engagement was better on those things. And and they just were going viral and people were talking about it and connecting with it. And they were telling me their own experiences in the healthcare system. It was just really eye-opening just how much of a problem this is and how much it's affecting people's lives. And so once I started going down that path, now we're three years later, I've done countless videos about all different parts of the healthcare system and there's some of my favorite videos to put together because of the education factor involved. Yeah, and, and, you know, especially with the health insurance companies, they rely on people not being educated about what it is that they're doing. And they right. make it as obscure and complex as possible to try to confuse people so that they just pay the bill, right? Because they're scared. They don't want to get sent to collections or something. And it seems too difficult to fight it. And so you just pay it. And so by bringing those obscured things and tactics and strategies into the light and making it simple enough for the general public to understand it's a real threat to what they're doing and we've heard some anecdotes about various higher-ups and some companies not being very pleased with Dr. Glockenplegen (laughs) so we're pretty proud of that. (laughs) I don't know how you manage to make these topics funny, but you do. I mean, the whole Texaco Mike (laughs) thing and that intro clip, it's just so brilliant. And what I'm wondering is, you know, you have this Twitter account, you have this TikTok account, you have all these videos, you know, they're bite-sized, they're potent. Each one like really packs a punch. Mm -hmm. Talk about the decision to branch out into a more long-form project. So you, you've launched this podcast together. It's called Knock Knock High and you bring on guests and you know it's an hour or around that. Yeah. So talk about the decision to open up this new avenue of public communication because it's very different from the videos. And are you still doing the videos or how do you think about how those fit together? I'm trying to do everything, <laughs> which is <laughs> is becoming more difficult with time. But uh, do you know any interns? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So you need a Jonathan. I need, yes. I need an actual real life social media Jonathan. It's an inside joke. <laughs> <laughs> so the production company that we work with actually approached me to do the podcast, and it's something that we talked about for a while because we just wanted to have something that we do together and explore that creatively. And also, I wanted to do something more long form, just to have more in-depth conversations about things. And also, as a way to bring other medical professionals, people in medicine, mostly physicians, 
to let loose a little bit, have a little bit of fun. Cause I think that's something that's missing. It's been missing for a long time is the ability for physicians to laugh at themselves, to talk about some of the outrageous, funny, at times difficult, embarrassing things that happen through the course of a medical career, just to show a more human side to the people that work in healthcare. And so the podcast really has that goal in mind to just show that side of us that we all know is there, but I think sometimes the public doesn't know it's there and I think they need to see it. And I love doing it with Kristen because she has a very important non-medical perspective on things. And also we like to give each other shit from time to time. So that works well on a podcast. And that's how our relationship started. Really was kind of, um, Witty banter on AOL back in the day, Instant AOL, Messenger. Shout out AOL oh Instant Messenger. Yeah. It's a deep cut. <laughs> I know. Sure. So the podcast feels a lot like that, kind of circling back to, to that time. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. We're enjoying it so far. And it's I see it as like a, an addition to the other things I'm doing because, you know, people struggle with attention span these days. So I, I like the still doing the bite-sized scripted things, but just... Now we have this other thing and just trying to fill all the hours of my day with something either content related or, <laughs> or ophthalmology related. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. Try to do all this stuff, but it's fun so far. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure the, the path will make itself clear, the balance between doctoring and creative-ing and parenting. And it's a lot. And, and I can relate to that myself having gone through somewhat similar, although also different journey. Um, And I just believe that the path falls into place and everything that you've done so far has just been so incredible, such an important voice in our community. And as we're rounding to a close, I guess maybe the question I'll leave you with is what are your hopes for the future? in an ideal world. And again, not to be like too interviewee, like where do you see yourself in five years, but just creatively, you know, whether it's creatively slash artistically or more in that advocacy realm, where do you see yourselves evolving together in this whole medical comedy career trajectory? That's now become a joint trajectory, yeah. which is so cool, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> you know, There's no roadmap for what we're doing. <laughs> there's not. I like the advocacy road that we're on. I've struggled for a while now doing all this stuff about health insurance, having this existential question hanging over my head. What good is any of this doing? Is it really having an impact? Because yeah, I'm presenting all these problems and trying to shine light on some of the issues, but where are the solutions? What's to come from all of this? And I don't have all the solutions. I hope to your question about where do you want this to go? Hopefully the solutions come either from me or from others who maybe get inspired by some of the content that we do together. I think the first step is you have to know what the problem is before you know what you're trying to solve. So hopefully we can be helpful in defining the problems. And that's the thing. It's not just one video, right? That's going to make a difference. It's like a thousand little paper cuts to these insurance companies. There's no individual effort that's going to make the difference. It's going to be all of us working together. 
And I think tools like humor and storytelling and writing and podcasting and these more creative avenues, if you look throughout history, art plays a big role in creating cultural change and revolution. So, you know, hopefully we can be a tiny drop in an ocean of other people working towards that goal, too. I also need some new characters. I need a pulmonologist. I need a radiation (laughs) oncologist. I get reminded regularly uh, that I need a plastic surgeon. So I'm working on those too, (laughs) on a a less important scale. Yeah. You have many, many tricks up your sleeves and I can't wait to watch it all unfold. Like I said, I've been following your work for so long and, and following it in a very like chronic way to use like a weirdly medical term. But again, like I felt like I was there when you had your cardiac arrest, I was like tracking it in real time on Twitter. And so in a way I feel just really invested in you two as people and as creators. And I'm just really thrilled that you were able to come on the show today to chat with me and I can't wait to see what you do next. And it's just so fun also to have both of you here and it's a great energy. So thank you so much um, for coming on. Thanks for having us. Yeah. It's been so fun. I have been speaking with Will and Kristen Flannery. They are Dr. Glaucomflecken and Lady Glaucomflecken. You can check out their content all over social media, all over the universe. We've got Twitter, we've got TikTok, we've got Instagram, we've got it all. And then if you would like to check out their amazing podcast, Knock Knock High, you can find that wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening. This episode of The Nocturnist was produced and edited by John Oliver and produced by Carly Besser. The Nocturnist executive producer is Ali Block, and our chief operating officer is Rebecca Groves. Our original theme music was composed by Yosef Monroe, and additional music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. The Nocturnist is made possible by the California Medical Association, a physician-led organization that works tirelessly to make sure that the doctor-patient relationship remains at the center of medicine. To learn more about the CMA, visit cmadocs.org. The Nocturnist is also sponsored by the California Healthcare Foundation and from donations from listeners like you. Thank you so much for supporting our work. If you enjoy the show, please help others find us by giving us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. To contribute your voice to an upcoming project or to make a donation, visit our website at thenocturnist.com. I'm your host, Emily Silverman. See you next week. And thank you again to Emily and the Nocturnists for sharing that interview with us. This is an arm and a leg. Our show is produced by Emily Pizzacreta and me, Dan Weissman, and edited by Ellen Weiss. Daisy Rosario is our consulting managing producer. Adam Raimunda is our audio wizard. Our music is by Dave Weiner and Blue Dot Sessions. Gabrielle Healy is our managing editor for audience. She edits the First Aid Kit newsletter. B. Bosco is our consulting director of operations. Sarah Balma is our operations manager. And an arm and a leg is produced in partnership with KFF Health News. That's a national newsroom producing in-depth journalism about healthcare in America and a core program at KFF an independent source of health policy research, polling, and journalism. Zach Dyer is senior audio producer at KFF Health News. He's editorial liaison, 
to this show. And thanks to the Institute for Nonprofit News for serving as our new fiscal sponsor, allowing us to accept tax-exempt donations. You can learn more about INN at INN.org. And finally, thanks to everybody who supports this show financially. If you haven't yet, we would love for you to join us. The place for that is armandlegshow.com slash support. Thanks for pitching in if you can, and thanks for listening.